Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We continue our study of John's Gospel, actually continuing our study in the third chapter. This is a discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. And as John has recorded it for us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have learned many things. And this morning we are going to look at verses 17 through 21. For context, because John 3.16 is so closely related to this text, I'm going to read it as well. We, we took John 3.16 by itself last week. And I don't think you will regret me reading it again this week. I don't know that you can read John 3.16 enough times in corporate worship. And so we're going to look at this section of John's Gospel, the third chapter, beginning in verse 16. Please give attention to the Word of God. For the Word of God is completely inerrant. The Word of God is completely sufficient. And the Word of God is completely authoritative. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate your word to our hearts, that even as we study it, we would see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory that we would know the majesty of our Savior, that we would know the greatness of His work, and that we would be spurred on to tell others far and wide of the good news of the gospel. This we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, last week we finished looking at a statement in the Bible that we all know. John 3.16. You may recall that I said as I started to read it, most of us could just finish it from memory. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish, but have eternal life. It doesn't matter who you are, what your past has been, how much money you have, or where you live. Whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. The Bible teaches that you can have eternal life just by believing in Jesus. Today, we see another whoever. It's actually repeated several times in our text. 
Whoever believes is saved, but whoever does not believe is condemned. And the same thing applies. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter how often you're in church. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you've memorized. It doesn't matter how well you know your theology. If you do not believe, you are condemned. So, Jesus sets for us here in our text the counterpoise of John 3.16. And in doing that, he spurs us on to faith in Jesus Christ. Because faith in Christ, believing in Jesus, is what makes all the difference. All that matters is your relationship to Jesus. Whether you trust him with your very soul. As we begin to open up this text, the first thing that I would like us to see is the initiative of God. The initiative of God. You will notice that verse 17 begins the same way that verse 16 begins. For God. Now, Jesus has told Nicodemus in this chapter about our problem. That our problem is we cannot even see the kingdom of God. And so we must be born again. But we cannot do that ourselves. It's so obvious that we can't do it ourselves that it seems a ridiculous notion. You remember Nicodemus's counter question. Well, Jesus, what am I supposed to do? Now that I'm old, do I somehow climb back into my mother's womb? How could I possibly be born again? And you see, we understand that Nicodemus wants Jesus to give him a list of things to do. He wants Jesus to tell him, you need to do this, you need to do that, and you need to do the other thing. And then Nicodemus is ready not only to check all the boxes, but to do them with fervency and get them done well. But Jesus is not asking Nicodemus to do anything. Jesus is not asking you to do something. He's not asking you to figure out how to give yourself birth. Jesus starts with God. This is crucially important for us because as we come to this well-known section of the scriptures, John 3, 16 and 17, we are bound so often to start with us. The highlight, the spotlight is on the whoever. Whoever believes. That's where we start. What have I done? What am I responsible for? But the Bible doesn't start there. The Bible doesn't put the spotlight on us. The Bible puts the spotlight always on God. And that's why it begins this way. For God. The solution is not in you. It's not in what you need to do. It's not in what you can fix. The solution is from God. God is the initiator. But let's not stop there. It's not just that God is first. Some people think, yes, God needs to initiate. God needs to do his part. And then, of course, I need to do my part. We're partners in this. If God does his part, then I have to follow in my part. And my part is just as important as God's part. That's also not what the Bible's saying. God is more than the initiator. He is the cause. He is the reason for your life. The reason for your rescue. We see this in this little word, for. 
It's not therefore. If it was therefore, what would you do? You'd look backwards, right? The for actually points us forwards. It's a little Greek word that implies causality. It tells us this is why this is happening. It's happening because God has acted. It's God who comes to us, not the other way around. And what God has done is to send His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent His Son to be the Savior of His people. And in doing that, God did not spare any amount. He didn't spare any measure in this initiation. He began with us with His best. He didn't make an initial probe or an initial inquiry to see if we were interested and we would somehow respond. You know, this is how almost everything is done in modern companies and finance today. You don't buy something. You have a free trial. There's a whole model along this. I don't know if you know this. It's called a freemium product. They give you something for free. They hold back many of the key features so that you will buy it. That's how we do things. We want to take a test drive. See if we should commit ourselves to it. We don't want to sign up in advance. I remember the, the old days when you signed a cell phone contract and you bound yourself for like two years. Not anymore. That's so passe. But you see, God doesn't think like that. He's not waiting for us to respond. He's not waiting to see if we're interested. He gives his all. He gives the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he gives effectually and fervently. He gives us in the most effective and greatest way. He comes in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, reaching out to the world, to us. And there is a specific, important purpose in God's initiative. We saw that in verse 16, but it is repeated again in verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. God did not reach out to condemn the world, but to save. That's important for us to see. Because you see, God is holy. And we know that He judges sin. But what Jesus tells us here is that God's initiating gift of His Son was not to condemn. It was to save. That's why the gospel is good news. Don't miss this. This is Jesus talking to us. If you happen to have one of these Bibles that is called a red letter Bible in addition, you will see that the words here of our text are in red. Most scholars, and I agree with them, say that this is Jesus speaking. I don't happen to like red letter Bibles. They strain my eyes. And I will say to this, even if you're in the minority report and you think this is John writing it instead of Jesus, I will still tell you it's still God's word. Completely. But Jesus here is speaking to us directly through John, telling us to focus on the salvation that he brings. Think about it. God could have sent Jesus to condemn. Jesus is the judge. 
God could have sent Jesus to condemn all with fire and destruction. God would have been just in doing that. But he didn't. That's because God's love is so great, so marvelous, that he has done the unexpected. He has done what we do not deserve. He sent the Savior. Now, when you look at Jesus, is that who you see? Do you see the love of God personified in Jesus? Do you see the only hope that you can count on? Look at verse 17 and personalize it. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn you, but in order that you might be saved through Him. Now, the second thing that we see in this text is a world that is condemned. Jesus describes how whosoever believes in Jesus Christ will be saved, but whoever does not believe is condemned. I think often, for many of us, we would like to have a little magic marker to kind of blot out certain portions of the Bible. We love to hear the good parts of the Bible, the parts that make us happy, the parts that help us to be who we think we should be. But you know what? Without the parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable, we wouldn't be happy. We wouldn't have life in Christ. We need to be told not just whoever believes, but we need to be told whoever does not believe. Now, Jesus answers this question here in a helpful way. Why did God not send Jesus to condemn? Well, he says that God did not need to send his son to condemn the world. The world already stands condemned. And so Jesus uses courtroom language here. The word condemn. The word uh, expose. The word judgment. This is legal language here. He's describing a trial that you and I, that the whole world is subject to. Our relationship with God is not based on how we feel or what we expect or what we think we deserve. It's based on judgment, true judgment. And so Jesus is telling us that the one on trial here is not God. It's the world. The world doesn't get to put God on trial. We are on trial. As a matter of fact, the trial is already over and we are condemned. Now, do you see the importance of this statement that Jesus makes? Whoever does not believe is condemned already. That means that our position at the starting point is one of condemnation. That's where we start. We don't start out good. You know, too often... People philosophize as if the world is full of people who are basically good. I often wonder if people who take that philosophy have ever looked at any piece of news from anywhere around the world ever. Because you don't need to be a theologian to know that people aren't basically good. You just need to have eyeballs. You can see destruction, war, murder, theft, gossip, lying... 
everywhere we go. We don't start out good and then just have to keep it up. And we certainly don't start out neutral. It's not that you get to look back on your life and just hope that you can see that the good that you've done outweighs the bad that you've done. No. And you don't get to argue that you're not as bad as other people. You begin standing under the judgment and condemnation of God. You start out in need of a Savior. Now why is that? The Bible tells us that Adam, our first father, sinned against God in the garden. He was given everything that he could ever need. He was created in innocence. He was given his companion. He was master over all things under the authority of God. He was given one command and he broke it. And when Adam sinned, he didn't just sin for himself. The Bible tells us throughout the scriptures, but most clearly in Romans chapter 5, that when Adam sinned, we sinned in him. That he was our covenant head. That he was the one who was responsible for us because we are all descended from Adam. And again, if you think anyone has escaped Adam's sin and curse and corruption, look around you. Everywhere we look, we see depravity, corruption, and sin. That's why the world is the way it is. That's why you don't have to teach children to be selfish. Have you ever noticed that children seem to come out of the womb yelling, mine? Right? You don't have to teach sin. It just happens. And... You know what the difference is between a child yelling mine and an adult? An adult yells mine in his head. An adult is smart enough not to broadcast his selfishness at times. It's something that is a part of who we are. We struggle to do the right thing. We want to do what is wrong. That is a consequence of original sin, of coming from Adam and being corrupted and sinful. But there's more than that. You see, it's not just that we inherit sin and corruption from Adam. We have actual sin which proceeds from that corruption. There is no one who has not sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible is very clear about this. But our experience itself is also clear. We can see and we understand and are ashamed of the things we have done. And we know we have not honored God the way we ought to. We've not loved others as we should. We have left so much left undone. You see, Jesus did not come into a world that had no need of him. He came into a world that is broken, sinful. He didn't need to condemn the world because the world was already under condemnation. There was no necessity for Jesus to condemn the world because the condemnation was already in place. He came to a world in need of salvation. He came to save you. The second reason that we are condemned is unbelief, Jesus tells us. And verse 18 here is 
also in parallel to verse 16. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 16 is the glorious news of the gospel. Whoever believes will be saved. But verse 18 tells us whoever does not believe is condemned. Unbelief itself highlights our desperate, horrible position without Jesus. So we might ask the question, what is unbelief? Because I think there is a sense in which if we were to conduct a poll and to ask people if they believed in Jesus, many, many people would say yes. If all it meant was, yeah, I think there probably was a Jesus. It's not going to change how I live or how I talk or what I do, but sure, if it doesn't cost me anything, yeah, I'll go along with that. That's not the kind of belief that Jesus is talking about. Unbelief is the failure to accept the truth about who we are. That we are sinners. The truth about what we need. A Savior. And the truth about who that Savior is. Jesus. It is a rejection of God's love in sending Jesus Christ so that we should not perish but have eternal life. Unbelief is failing to recognize the, how great and glorious Jesus is. Do you see why that would show us as condemned. Here, again, Jesus is using trial language. But there is another trial in the Gospel of John that we will come across later. It's a trial in which Jesus was unjustly condemned. The only one who was innocent, perfect, the Son of God Himself, condemned to death. And He was condemned because the world rejects Him. And the gift of salvation he brings. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you are declaring God to be a liar. That God is not worthy. That you don't need God. And that you are fine just as you are. Make no mistake about it. If you don't believe in Jesus, that's what you're saying. You know what an agnostic is? An atheist who's a coward. Doesn't want to admit that he doesn't believe. He says, well, I'm not sure. There is no not sure with Jesus. Whoever believes is saved. Whoever does not believe is condemned. You see, unbelief is ingratitude. It is Worthy of condemnation because we are ungrateful for what God has done for us. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever done something for someone else that they were not thankful for or grateful for? You know, perhaps, I know this would never be anything any of the men in our congregation would do, so I'm going to use something completely theoretical. Let's say that one of the ladies spent all day cooking their husband his favorite meal. Not just the favorite main course, but like the favorite sides and the favorite dessert. And set the table out and was ready for a glorious dinner to spend time with her husband. 
And the husband comes in and opens the door, and, he, and she says, Honey, come on into the dining room. And he says, No, no, that's okay. I got a burger on the way home. I'm just going to watch the game on TV. How would you feel at that moment? You see, that's a sliver of the ungratefulness that we throw at God with unbelief. The third reason that we are condemned, Jesus tells us, is we love darkness. Now, this is something that we do not like to admit, that we actually hide. But Jesus pulls no punches here. In verse 19, he says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. He says the light came into the world and was rejected because what the world wanted was darkness. Think about what Jesus is saying here. So often, as we mentioned, the world says people are good and there's no reason for condemnation. But what Jesus is saying here is the primary problem of the world between you and me is not intellectual, but it is rather moral. Now, what do I mean by that? Often it seems to us that the reason people don't believe in Jesus is they just don't get it. We haven't explained it well enough to them. And so we try to find the best Bible verses to use or the best apologetics books or we try to uh, not only appeal to their intellect but to their emotions. We try to get the perfect music for them or the perfect lighting for them or to try to get the perfect location because we're convinced if people really understood who Jesus is, they would love him like we do. That's not true. You see, the truth is people don't act immorally because they don't believe in Jesus. People don't believe in Jesus because they want to act immorally. They don't want to give up their sin. That is the barrier between them and God. You see, people aren't trapped in their sin because they don't believe in Jesus. The problem is not an intellectual problem. Immorality is what leads to unbelief. We don't want to give up the sins that are precious to us. There is a recounting of a minister who was dealing with college students uh, in an apologetic manner, trying to share the gospel with them. And, and if you know college students, you know college students are absolutely full of questions. Right? The, the ability to ask why over and over and over again does not stop at the age of four. It, it continues on. And so he was speaking to a young man, a college student, and, and the young man kept bringing up objection after objection and question after question about how, how, we, how do we know the Bible is true? How do we know the Gospels are accurate? How do we know about the textual basis? How do we know about the teaching that's been handed down through? How do we know that people actually witness this? Over All these questions over and over again. And the minister just looked at the young man and he said, Who are you sleeping with? And the man broke down. Because you see, the intellectual banter was covering guilt of sin. That's what it was. And, and I have to tell you that I find that is very, very, very often true. That those who are most intellectually resistant to the gospel 
will not give up the sin that they cherish. And they know if they intellectually agree, they must do that. And so that's the barrier that they put there. Because believing in Jesus means you are no longer the master of your life. You are now bought with a price. It means you have to give up the sin that you love and enjoy. Do you see why the people loved darkness? It's because their works were evil. And why they don't come to the light? It's because their works will be exposed. Because even the smallest amount of light dispels darkness, doesn't it? It doesn't take much darkness, or excuse me, it doesn't take much light to completely undo darkness. I'm the sort of person that likes to sleep in the dark. Like really in the dark. Um, when I go to a hotel, I learned this trick years ago. You could pull the shades and the curtains tight, but they never quite meet. And that light comes in. You know what you can do is you can go take one of the hangers off of the closet and clip the curtains together and it blots out all the light. Another thing that often will happen is I don't like light in my room because I can't fall asleep. I toss and turn. I don't like nightlights. I'm not a nightlight person. My dad, on the other hand, is a nightlight guy. He, when we go visit him, there's nightlights in the halls. He tells me where the nightlight in my room is. He tells me where the nightlight is in the, the rest of the family's rooms. He's afraid that we're going to trip and fall and kill ourselves on the way to the restroom. That's a dad thing. Maybe I'll get there. The first thing that I do if there's a nightlight in my room is I turn it off. Turn off the nightlight in the hall because even the tiniest bit of light can actually be painful, can it, if you're used to the dark. That physical reality is a reflection of a spiritual reality. It's why people are so resistant to any discussion about the Bible or about Jesus or about the gospel. Because they know as soon as they start to have that discussion, that guilt and pain is going to show up in their soul. And so they keep it at arm's length. Take an honest look at your life. What are the areas that you know are contrary to God in your life? What sins do you need to give up and to repent of? Will you bring those to the cross? Or do you love them more than Jesus? Because that's the question, as harsh as it sounds, that's the question. Do you love sin more than Jesus? Are you afraid? To come into the light because your hypocrisy might be seen? You see, we all live and struggle with sin. I think the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to this church or any other church is for the entire church to be able to hear what everyone is thinking. If you knew the depths and the depravity of my sin, you would not let me in this pulpit. And there'd be a problem because nobody else could come into the pulpit either. You see, we are sinners in need of grace. We need repentance. We need a Savior. Well, Jesus gives us glorious hope at the end of this text. It is difficult to hear that we are condemned. It is difficult to hear that we must believe and that unbelief is a moral category, as it were. 
But Jesus tells us in verse 21 that not all are condemned. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is another whoever. And this whoever is also designed to give us an assurance that some come to the light. That some are not afraid to have their work seen. That some do what is true. There are those who have been changed by the gospel. They no longer love darkness. They no longer have deeds that are evil. They are no longer consumed with sin. They have been changed by the gospel, by the glorious work of Jesus. There is great hope in this verse, but we need to see where the hope lies. Not all remain condemned. Not all remain chained by the darkness. Not all are ashamed of what they do. But it's important to see the reason for that. Jesus ends this discussion with Nicodemus the way he began it. Look at the last two words. In God. Those who come to the light want their works to be seen. But those works have a distinct character. They are carried out, Jesus says, in God. We might translate this phrase carried out as worked. It's the same word. Their works are worked in God. God is the one at work. It's God's work that causes the change. Jesus is not telling you to clean up your act and to do the truth and then come to him and he will accept you and you will no longer be condemned. He says, those who have been born again by the Spirit, by the power of God, the sovereign initiating work of God, are changed and given new life. They are born again. They no longer love the darkness. They seek the light. They no longer do works that are evil. They do the truth, and they do it because of God's work in them. Only when God works in you will you be taken from darkness to light, from condemnation to salvation. From death to eternal life. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to leave the darkness behind. Today is the day to embrace the Son of God and to dwell in the light of His presence forever. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Christian, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if your only hope and trust is in His work to save you from the condemnation and wrath of God for your sins, you can know you have eternal life. You can have confidence. You can trust the Lord to do good works in you. Because that's what Jesus promises right here. He promises you life. Trust Jesus. Take him at his word. Let's pray.